Take your Bibles with me, if you would, this morning and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy 1 in your Bibles, verses 6 through 12 is where we were last time. I don't know how uh, uh, many of you weren't here. Uh, last time we actually met in person, uh, several of you were, but some of you were not. Uh, however, we were in 1 Timothy chapter six, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, and I found it particularly inconvenient at the time that we um, prefaced this rather large gap with a part 1 and a part 2, uh, but not really. Uh, in the sense that part one was the teaching and part two is more the application. Uh, and so as it relates this morning, it's going to be somewhat of an application message uh, to this unique passage of Scripture, uh, this important passage of Scripture that we talked through last time. I'm going to read it for you this morning and then we'll do just a brief bit of review before stepping into our time together today. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. The Bible says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not therefore, therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him, against that day. So last time, when we talked through this passage of Scripture directly, uh, Paul, we recognized Paul sought to exhort Timothy and to call him into remembrance, to stir up within him uh, the, the spirit, the, the, the commission that had been given unto him, and that he be not timid, not ashamed either of the Lord or of the testimony of Paul. Remember, at this point, Paul is uh, rather anticipating his imminent death, his martyrdom. He is back in prison after having been released for some time. He went to Rome. He was imprisoned in Rome. He was released for a period of time, it would seem, and then he was imprisoned once again, and though within the, the scope of the first, um, uh, the, the, the first time he was in Rome, the first time he was imprisoned, there was a full uh, confidence within his heart that he would be released, that he would see people again. We see that from Philippians, uh, that as he's writing to the Philippian believers, uh, we believe that he was probably in Rome at that time, that he expresses a confidence that he would see them again, that he would desire to come unto them himself. And yet, simultaneously, while we, while we see that to be true, uh, we, we see in 2 Timothy a, a reservation, as it were, to the fact that he fully anticipated that this stint would end in his martyrdom. And there was a shame that was associated uh, uh, within the world's context with his imprisonment. There was a shame that was associated with the fact that he was, that, that he was in the, that um, state of imprisonment and that he would be martyred for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he, he exhorted Timothy, don't you be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of my testimony. And don't be ashamed of the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But rather, he says, be ready to be a willing participant, partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. So he said, much, much to the contrary, rather than having a spirit of fear, that word there being timidity, 
as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it relates to our living out the gospel of Jesus Christ in a manner that is, that, that, that is uh, bold before the world. Paul says, don't be, don't be timid. Don't be afraid. And as we concluded our time, we acknowledge the various manners in which we might struggle sharing the gospel or living the gospel because of this spirit of fear. Now remember, this idea of, of the spirit of fear here, this verse is used any number of times to simply speak of never being afraid of anything, and that's really not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about a spirit of timidity by which we are either unwilling to share the gospel of Jesus Christ or unwilling to live out the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ because in doing so, we are afraid for one reason or another. And we talked about some of the reasons why that might be. And we're going to, to, to kind of hit that point again. Some of the ways that this timidity might manifest itself, some of the reasons why this timidity might manifest itself. And we'll take the time to consider carefully the nature of both evangelism and testimony in our place and time. In doing so, I hope that it will stir up within us a desire and a willingness to participate in this great work. And we'll use the template of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 to help us understand this concept, that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. This reality is the key to our success in being a light sharing and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's talk it through. The first idea here, God has not given us the spirit of fear. We need to understand that the spirit of timidity does not come from God. There's any number of reasons why a man or woman would be timid, either in sharing the gospel or living out the gospel. And, and do take note, it, it's both. We're not all necessarily uh, wired the same way. And we all have various means and ways by which we would seek to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the question is, would you typically live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in some way or speak up the gospel in, in some way, and then there's something that would stop you, that would hinder you, that would cause you to reconsider or change your course of action to realign with some other expectation upon you? Many are timid because they feel like they don't know enough about the gospel or, or, or they, they don't have a confidence in the word of God in order to live out the realities of the gospel. As it re would relate to actually sharing the gospel in person, some would say, well, pastor, I just, I don't know the Bible well enough, or I can't explain the gospel very well, or I don't have the answers to all the questions that might be asked of me. Others are timid because they don't want to be disliked. They don't want to be persecuted. Uh, they don't want to be rejected. Uh, this timidity is not just one that would, would find its way out in our, our uh, care in, in actually speaking the gospel, as would be the case with uh, a feeling as though we don't know enough, but this might also change how we live. In other words, you're at work or, or you're at your neighbor's house and, and they're engaging in something which is um, uh, uncompromisingly worldly, and it's something which you would not engage in in any way, shape, or form in your normal life, and instead of just living out the consistency with your normal life, which is in and of itself, <clears throat> excuse me, a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you acquiesce, you change, you, you mold yourself to a form of worldliness in order to, to not um, have to deal with the, the shame or the reproach or, or even the awkwardness of standing upon what you know is right. And as it would relate to reflecting the gospel of Jesus Christ indeed, uh, oftentimes this is the problem, that we don't want to be disliked, we don't want to be rejected, we don't want people to think that, that we are different from them. And so we 
alter our manner of living, we alter our appearance, we alter the way we would act or talk or whatever it might be, to, be, to, to fall out of consistency with the nature of the gospel uh, so that people don't dislike us. Answering these fears and this timidity will be the essence of this point and in many ways the fullness of our time together. But let me say this before addressing those things. We know that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17 tells us this plainly. We know that we cannot trust our emotions because our emotions are notoriously deceptive, notoriously unreliable. We've often talked about this in relation to determining whether or not we're walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. When we're walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit, certain characteristics invariably manifest themselves in our lives, right? We might, we might liken this by way of illustration to the nature of being ill. When I have a fever, I know that something is wrong in my body. It might be a virus. It might be an infection. I may not know immediately what the problem is, but what I know without question is that the fever is not the actual problem, right? The body doesn't get a fever and you say, oh, I've got a fever. The fever is the problem. The fever is a symptom, a manifestation of a deeper problem manifestation of a virus that your body's trying to fight off. So it's raising its body temperature so the virus cannot replicate as fast within your body so that your immune system has the capacity and the time to, de to, to destroy it, to defeat it, uh, while uh, to get ahead of it so it doesn't replicate faster than the body can deal with it. Or an infection. And the body dealing with an infection by, again, raising your body temperature. The fever is only a symptom of the issues at hand. And the same can be said with both sin and righteousness, that when it comes to the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit, they are symptoms, manifestations of whether or not I am personally abiding in Christ. So we know Galatians 5, and it presents us with these concepts as it relates to the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 23 says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, uh, excuse me, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. So when we see the works of the flesh, the flesh manifest in our lives, in our bodies, this is a symptom. And it's a symptom telling us that we're walking in the flesh. When we see the fruit of the Spirit manifesting itself in our bodies, this is also a symptom, acknowledging to us that we are walking in the Spirit or abiding in Christ. And by this we can know whether we are in this flesh or we're in the Spirit because we can see the objective evidence of the effects of these things in our hearts and in our lives. And we know how we're doing because we know what's in our hearts. Now, carry that over to what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 this morning. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, that word meaning timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In the same way that we can know whether or not we are abiding in Christ and walking in the Spirit by means of the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit, so too we can understand these things from this concept of the spirit of fear. 
where the spirit of the fear is, what we can know is that we are manifesting a heart that is submitted to some other spirit than the spirit of God. Because that spirit, that spirit of timidity, is not from God. Now, maybe it's a spirit of laziness. You just don't want to go through the process of having to tell that person. And it's far, better, far easier just to not tell them than to have to go through the process of tell them and explain and deal with their, their reasoning and their responses. Maybe it's a spirit of apathy that you just don't care, that you just want to deal with yourself. Just, I'm going to leave you alone. You're going to leave me alone. I'm not going to tell you what I believe. You're not going to tell me what you believe. Kind of a don't ask, don't tell type idea. And I'm just going to let life move on. And though, though there's an impression upon your heart that you ought to share the gospel or you ought to live out the realities of the gospel in a certain way, you say, I'm just not going to deal with that. Or maybe it's a spirit of self-preservation, right, of, of that selfishness that says, I don't want someone not to like me, or I don't want to, to uh, bring, I don't want conflict, so I'm just going to ignore the fact that I am a Christian and live in a manner that is consistent with what other people would expect. There's some spirit working in me other than the spirit of God. And again, by this I don't mean, I'm not talking here, don't translate into what I'm saying here directly, a certain method of evangelism. Please understand this with me. What I'm talking about, again, is going to be controversial perhaps in our circles, but we've spoken before of all the different methods by which we can evangelize. And we acknowledge that not everyone is cut from the same cloth, that God has gifted each of us to evangelize in different ways. I do not believe that the spirit of fear is overcoming a man who doesn't evangelize the way others might. In other words, if I tell you I go to the jail every week, not recently, but I used to go to the jail every week and I intend to do so again once they let me. And I sit across from people and I have 30 minute to an hour long conversations with them, helping them navigate the elements of this life, confronting them about the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving them answers to their questions, helping them navigate the Bible, helping them navigate their confusion, helping them navigate their past, and bringing them to a place of peace and understanding as it relates to the gospel. And you might say, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And it's not that you have a spirit of fear or timidity, it's just that you're not cut from that cloth to sit across from someone one-on-one -on -one and do that with them in, in, in the manner of you don't know this person, you're never going to see this person again, you have to quickly understand what's going on, uh, figure it out, and, and deal with those problems. And maybe that's not your gifting. That's okay. We need to be careful that we don't see... Now, we might look at someone else and say, man, I wish I could share the gospel the way they do. I wish I could articulate the gospel the way they do. I wish I, understood, I, wish I was able to uh, uh, just step out and, and uh, break the ice with people and engage with them in conversation. That's something that I can't do well, and boy, I wish I could. I see someone who can just go into any, any situation, and immediately they can make everyone feel comfortable. They can make everyone open up drop their guard, drop their defenses, and then next thing you know, everyone's having a wonderful time. I wish I was one of those people. I'm not one of those people. I get into a group of people, and I, I've got my, my basic questions, right? How you doing? What's new? What are you learning? Basic questions, and then after that, I got nothing. I got nothing. Literally, my head goes empty, and I hope that someone else can fill some, some conversation piece. 
Every once in a while, if there's actually something I can hang on to, if I know you well enough, hey, how's the job going? Hey, so you, you, you had said this last week, how did that turn out? Various things that I can go on if there's something to go on, but, but I'm not gifted in that way. And here's the thing. That's okay. Now, there are certain things that I can get over through practice. I can write out more break the ice questions, but it's never going to be natural to me because God hasn't wired me that way. And I should not. God forbid that I should feel frustrated and guilty over the fact that I'm not wired the way some of you are. God forbid that you should feel frustrated and guilty over the fact that you're not wired the way I am. But God forbid that I use that as an excuse to do nothing because God has enabled you. God has gifted you in some way by which you can exemplify or tell the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people that are around you. I cannot say that a man has the spirit of fear as it relates to the gospel because he spends his, because, because of his gifts or because of what he does not have his gifts, because he spends his time in a nursing home ministering to the elderly rather than door knocking, or because he works in a soup kitchen rather than standing on a street corner preaching. This is not an adequate gauge of the spirit of fear. Some men are gifted and compelled in some ways. Others are gifted and compelled in other ways. Don't feel guilty because of the way God made you. And the spirit of fear is not even necessarily uh, to be reflected in whether or not I involve myself in ministry. In other words, if I go to the jail every week and I minister to the men and women inside, but all the while I'm afraid to give the gospel. This is one of those interesting things that I've come across any number of times. There are a couple of other people that regularly work in the jail, and they will not for the life of them give the gospel. They're afraid to give the gospel. They're afraid that they're going to offend someone if they give the gospel. And so I've had people who I've sat across from before, and they've been meeting with other people for several weeks, and they've been meeting with these other faith representatives, and then they get to me, and I give them the gospel, and they say, I've never heard that before. So just because you're a part of a ministry does not mean you don't have the spirit of fear. Just because you're willing to go out and do something does not mean you don't have the spirit of fear. And just because you are not engaged in a certain ministry doesn't mean you do have the spirit of fear. I hope that makes sense. What I'm trying to say is the spirit of fear cannot be gauged explicitly simply on the basis of whether or not you are or are not engaged in a certain type of ministry. Even though I'm a part of a ministry, I can be operating under a spirit of fear. Likewise, if I don't yet have the resources by which I'm able to adequately use my giftings, or you haven't yet fully figured out what your giftings are, but when an opportunity arises, you're willing to enable to share the gospel, how can any man say that you have the spirit of fear, that you have the spirit of timidity? Now, the reason I'm trying to take care in this is because the last thing I want for you to do is to walk away from this message riddled with guilt because you don't do things the way other people do. I also don't want you to walk away from this dismissing true conviction on your heart because the Lord has said you need to be doing this and you're not doing it for one reason or another. Because of some external circumstance, some external ministry, something you are or are not doing, I don't want you to walk away with the wrong idea. And so this is where you need to be very careful within your own heart. And you need to be willing to truly search the difference between how you're feeling and what the Spirit of God is telling you 
between what is you and what is God. And this is not always an easy thing to parse. There are things that are built into us. There are expectations that can be placed into us, whether that's by various ministers and ministries or whether that's simply by our own expectations. One of the things that many of you know I have a hard time with when it comes winter at Legacy Baptist Church is ever canceling because of snow. And even when it seems as though I really ought to cancel because uh, even though I can get to church just fine because I'm only a few minutes away, I don't want the people in the church endangering themselves on the roads. There's simply no reason to do that under certain circumstances. But I struggle so much with that because I've grown up under a philosophy of let's keep the doors open and if the doors are open, we're going to be there. And so there's a struggle in my heart where I have to carefully determine what is me and what is God. What is my selfishness or what is my my wanting to make sure I'm not um, giving the wrong impression or what is just what has been uh, ingrained into me through the years and what is actually God saying, no, 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 I want the doors open today. And these are things that I, I, I have to struggle with. We all have these struggles. And what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to carry from this message the struggles of your own flesh. I want you to carry from this message the principles of the Word of God, which then the Spirit of God can take and enable you to share the gospel without fear and timidity, but also without guilt. So this is an opportunity to search our hearts, to try our motives, to test the fruit of our lives, and also to stir up within us a determination that we're going to submit to the spirit of God, not to the spirit of fear. Now, each of the next three points is going to confront, as it were, a different element of the spirit of fear and counter it with those things which the spirit of the Lord does provide in contrast to the spirit of fear. So God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. From God comes, number one, power. The gospel is the power of God, not you. Let's speak first to this fear and timidity that comes from you not knowing the gospel well, from not, ha- not being effective uh, in sharing the gospel, that you wouldn't know what to say, that you wouldn't be able to put the words together, that you wouldn't know all the verses you need, that you stumble over your words, that you get confused, whatever it might be. Fear of the unknown, Uh, afraid to say something wrong. Several thoughts on this. Number one, if you're a believer, then you know how to be saved. Did you know that? If you're a believer, if you're truly a believer, then you know how to be saved, right? Because you did it. Like, you're saved. You're a believer. You're born again, which means you know how. Every believer is capable of telling a person what you know. You may not have all the ins and outs. You may not have all the lingo proper. You may not have all of the definitions right. You may not be able to parse for them all of the different concepts of uh, repentance and confession and uh, what do you need and what don't you need and all of that. And you know what? Most, Most new believers can't, right? But here's what you can do. You can tell them what you know. You can tell them that there was a time where you were where where you you recognize that you are a sinner separated from God. You can tell them what went through your heart on the day that you heard the gospel and you understood it. You can tell them the things you heard and believed about Jesus. You can tell them the response you had and what it did inside of you, the change that it made. Just tell them what you know. Well, pastor, I don't don't understand. Well, uh, uh, 
I, ha I haven't memorized all the definitions of atonement and justification. And, uh, okay, tell them what you know. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. Share the gospel. And if you don't remember your salvation and you can't articulate the gospel because you don't remember it, well, then you need to make sure of yourself first of all. If you're just living off of somebody else giving you assurances of your own salvation, then you, you need to start there. Get, get your house in order. Make sure you know you're saved. And then once you do know you're saved, tell everybody why. Tell everybody how you know. This is what we call in our circles a personal testimony, right? Second, explaining the gospel well comes only by doing it. So first, if you're a believer, you know how to be saved. Second, explaining the gospel well comes only by doing it. Answering questions properly comes only by hearing the questions and then attempting to answer them. Experience is really the best and only teacher in this regard. If you never engage people with the gospel, you'll never be good at it. And the first or second time you engage someone with the gospel, you may walk away and say, wow, that went horribly. I didn't know what to say. Nothing came to my mind. It was confusing. They asked a question. I didn't have an answer. And it went horribly. Well, so get the answers. Think through it in your mind and know better next time what to say. You don't become a good cook just by reading recipes, do you? You can read recipes all day. You can memorize the ingredient list, and that's not necessarily going to make you successful at cooking that meal. You have to cook. You have to understand the dynamics. You have to make mistakes. You have to learn. One of those interesting things about cooking, there's a whole lot more to it than just the recipe book, right? It's a very different thing to bake a cake in Minnesota than it is to bake a cake in Colorado. Did you know that? Because there's an elevation difference because there's a humidity difference, a huge one, huge elevation difference, huge humidity difference. When you cook at altitude, it, it affects the meal differently than when you cook down at sea level. All of those things come into play when you cook, but you won't know until you do it. And so we have to share the gospel if we're going to get proficient at sharing the gospel. You don't become a good evangelist just by reading or even by watching or hearing gospel presentations. Nothing can replace practice, repetition, getting out there, sharing it, and not even just sharing it verbally. Nothing can replace living it. So you live it and then you falter. You, you, you backed off when you shouldn't have backed off or you pushed a little hard. I, I remember one, one very hard lesson when I was in college where I was, we, we, we were having a prayer group, and uh, this is not the gospel as it relates to salvation. This is more or less a lesson as it related to me and my ministry and spiritual teaching. And there was a young man who came in. We, we had a prayer group going, and one night a, a, a young man came in who regularly attended our prayer group. And um, I was I, sort of the, the leader, just de facto leader. No one, we didn't have elections or anything. Uh, and he came in and he said, hey, I, I've just got, a, I've got too much to do tonight. I'm not going to come. And I, I gave him so much grief. I, I put so much guilt on him. Okay, I guess if whatever it is you have to do is more important than God. And I gave him all of this grief because I'd seen someone else do that before. And I thought, hey, yeah, let's put some pressure. Pressure is good. And that young man who had been very faithful to the prayer group looked at me and said, you know, I don't appreciate that 
because I can't come one night to a prayer group that you would le levy that kind of guilt upon me. I didn't say I wasn't going to come back at all. I just can't do it tonight. And I learned a lesson there. And I could have said, well, I guess I'm done with this whole thing because I, I, because I, 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 I made a mistake. And I did make a mistake there. I put undue pressure on a person that, that didn't need to be put on him when he had to miss a prayer group for one night. But I, I learned from it. You know, sometimes you have to learn things the hard way. You say something, you, 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 you do something, and it was the wrong tact. Instead of being effective, it was insulting. Instead of being effective, it was, um, it, it was angering. And not angering like they're angry at God, but angering like I did something wrong here. So you learn from it, and you grow. But you know what? You're only, you're only going to learn by doing. And you're going to make your mistakes. And you're going to say the wrong thing from time to time. And you're going to slip up. And that's okay. But you got to be out there doing it if you're going to get better. Third, the idea that you don't know the Bible well enough might be true, but also do take note. It's not an excuse. You will very likely know the Bible better than almost anyone you will engage with in the gospel. And if they have questions you can't answer, tell them you don't know the answer, but that you'll find it for them. No one expects a believer to know everything. And you know what? Those believers that pretend to know everything are often pretty off-putting to the world, aren't they? But if I waited until I had every verse at my disposal, if I waited until I had complete confidence before I stepped out into any ministry, before I stepped out into any testimony, I'd never do it, would I? To this day, I would not be doing it. If I had to have full confidence in my ability and my capacity to express the word of God to you before I got behind this pulpit, I never would have gotten behind this pulpit. And for those of you that have known me for a long time, my preaching has changed a lot over the years. There's been a lot of trial and error, a lot of growth. As a matter of fact, even over the course of this last six weeks that I've been um, more overflow preaching and I've not been following notes, um, there have been some things that I have learned about myself that are going to start to find their way into my preaching a lot more because I've learned some things. I've uh, found some ways that I've become out of balance, that, that, that things could be better. But that's only by doing only by doing. It's important to be prepared, to learn to share the gospel, to go out with people who share the gospel and to watch them, to watch videos on YouTube about people that share the gospel, to see how others live the gospel, not just sharing it in person, but living it, to understand how people live the gospel, the ways that they stand up for the gospel, the ways that they don't, the, the, the battles that they choose to fight, the battles that they don't. These are all important things to prepare ourselves for sharing the gospel. But the final part here, and this is actually the most important part, this is where the point comes from. Remember, Christian, this foundational point that when you share the gospel, you are never doing it alone, ever. Your job in sharing the gospel is not to be compelling. Your job in sharing the gospel is not to sell a product. You don't need to appeal to the hearers, flatter the hearers, impress the hearers in order to be effective with the gospel. You don't need to be the loudest voice in order to be the voice best heard. And that because sharing the gospel has absolutely nothing to do with you appealing to the flesh 
with you appealing to the person of the hearer. Sharing the gospel is an appeal to the spirit of the hearer. And because the power of the gospel is a power that appeals to the spirit of the hearer, the messenger does not matter nearly as much as the message. When I share the gospel, I am partnering with God. The gospel that's coming out of my lips, empowered by the spirit of God, is what has the effect on people. Impure and ineffective though the vessel might be, as I live the gospel of Jesus Christ among my coworkers and my friends and my family, as I speak the gospel into the ears of hearers, it is not the flashiness of my presentation or the perfection of my presentation that brings about effectiveness. It is the God behind it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not the messenger. This preacher is not the power of God unto salvation. My capacity to communicate and articulate is not the power of God unto salvation. The Spirit of God takes the gospel and commends it to the hearts of the hearers. He convicts their hearts of sin. He calls them to respond. He illuminates them to these truths. None of this is my doing. None of this is my power. I'm the messenger. How do I know this to be true? Well, Jesus said so. Jesus tells us this. This is how Jesus commissioned us to go in his power. And so when we consider this idea that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, one of the primary reasons why I don't have to be timid, why I don't have to give in to this idea that I don't know enough or I'm not good enough or whatever it might be, is because it's not about you. Sharing the gospel is not about you. Sharing the gospel is about God. Now, I want to share it clearly. I want to live it clearly. I want to do my best to re remove and reduce distractions, things that would pull people out of the illuminating and convicting work of the Spirit of God. But the, the gospel is not about you, except to the extent that you are the messenger of it. So I'd like to go through a progression of verses where Jesus speaks to this end, helps us understand this concept. In John chapter 6, verses 44 to 48, Jesus said, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he that hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Jesus tells us that every man who comes to God through Christ comes because the Father draws him. He comes at the behest of the drawing of the Father. That the Father draws them to the Son. And then Jesus quotes what he calls the scriptures. It's a concept, not so much a direct verse, but a concept found throughout the prophets. We see it in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, Isaiah 54, verse 13. We see it in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. We see it in Micah chapter 4, verse 2. All containing the promise that God will teach his people of himself, that he will draw men, that those who hear him, those who respond to said drawing and who hear him will learn of him and come unto him. 
and they will receive him. And Jesus directly attributes this drawing, this teaching, with those who will be raised up on the last day unto everlasting life. It would be several chapters later that Jesus returns to this concept. In John chapter 12, verses 28 to 33, Jesus is praying here. He says, Father, glorify thy name. The Bible says, Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said the angel spake to him, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So John 12, Jesus again speaks of this concept of drawing, that the Father will draw those that will come unto him, and then those will come unto him. Jesus thus saying that if he be lifted up, speaking of his death on the cross, where he would be nailed to a cross and then lifted high, if he be lifted up, he would draw all men unto him. So the Bible says there's only one way to come to the Son, and that's through the drawing of the Father. And the Bible says that the Son having been lifted up, thus all men would be drawn unto him. All men experience this drawing, not just a select few. There is a select few, as we saw in John chapter 6, who would come, who would actually respond to this drawing. And yet all men would be drawn unto him. Notice also verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. So Jesus links his work on the cross with the definitive judgment of the world, and specifically the judgment against the prince of this world, that being Satan, the great enemy of God's people. And this link is important because it points us to the final passage that I would desire to share with you, and that being John chapter 16. I quote this one quite regularly. Verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell unto you, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment because the Prince of this world is judged. Jesus tells his disciples here that it is expedient for them that he go away speaking of him dying and then ascending unto the Father, because once he leaves, he will send the Comforter. Now, John 15 identified who this Comforter was, and Jesus specifically says in John 15 that the Comforter is the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth. And he says that this Comforter would come into the world and that when he comes, he would reprove or convince the world of three things, of sin, and that being specifically the sin of unbelief, as we see in verse 9. The only unforgivable sin, the sin for which men are sent to everlasting fire. Of righteousness, that being because Jesus' resurrection proves the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For the resurrection of Jesus from the dead represents, among other things, as we have talked about several times over the last few weeks, God's divine stamp of approval upon all that Jesus did and said during his life. And finally, he will convince and convict the world of judgment. 
because the prince of the world is judged and anybody who rejects Jesus' righteousness and refuses to believe, anyone who persists in the sin of unbelief by rejecting the righteousness of Jesus Christ will share with the prince of this world in his judgment. Now, when we put these passages together, and there's no disservice to the text being done as we have linked them one to another in the book of John, these passages form a consistent picture of the nature of God's interaction with the unbelieving world as it relates to the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. And it is this. When the gospel goes forth out of your lips, when you live out the gospel through your testimony and others behold your good works, they behold you living out the gospel in the way that you talk, in the things you will say, won't say, will do, won't do, will go, won't go, when, when, when your life manifests the gospel, when your lips manifest the gospel, the Spirit of God is commending those truths into the hearts of people. The Spirit of God is drawing men to Christ, convincing their hearts that they are in unbelief, that Jesus Christ is the righteous one, and that if they, not, if they do not get on the side of Jesus, who is the righteous one, they are on the side of the prince of this world, who is and will be judged and thus they will be judged as well. All of this work is being done in the hearts of the man unto whom you are articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's God's work in their heart. That's God's power working in them as you are living out that testimony, as you are speaking that testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what this means is that the power and effectiveness of the gospel is not directly dependent upon your eloquence or on your knowledge or on your memory or on your capabilities or on your charisma or any of those things having to do with you. The power of the gospel is God's power. It is God working in and through you. It is your job to tell. It is God's job to convince. It is your job to be a testimony before the eyes of the world. It is God's job to testify into their hearts. And the assurance from this is threefold. First, it means you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be faithful. Isn't that a blessing? Aren't you thankful you don't have to be perfect? You just have to be faithful. Second, it means that no matter how good you are at sharing the gospel, the results are not yours. They're God's. So I can't keep my spiritual gun in my belt and notch it every time someone gets saved because it, it wasn't about me. Thank the Lord he used me as a vessel. Although some plant, some water, God gives the increase, right? Some, some harvest. So I, I don't know if I was the, you know, some, maybe I've done a lot of planting in my day, but not a lot of reaping. Maybe I've done a lot of watering, but not a lot of harvesting. The harvester has no more right to notch his gun than the planter or the waterer, right? God brings forth the increase. The glory does not go to me. And by the way, when someone rejects the gospel, the shame is not laid at my feet. It's not my fault. Unless I'm, not, unless I'm living in a manner that would compel them to reject the gospel. If I share the gospel and someone doesn't accept it, that's, that's not, they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting the power of God. They're rejecting Christ. Third, it means that when people say no to you, as I just mentioned, it's not really you they're saying no to. So I don't need to fear. I don't need to have the spirit of timidity. If they reject me, they're really rejecting Christ. 
If they take it out on me, I thus experience the privilege of walking in the footsteps of the one who faced the ultimate pain for the testimony of, uh, of God. And if they do receive it, it's no more about me than if they don't. Because it's the power of God. If they receive the gospel, they're receiving Christ. They're not receiving me. Right? So the gospel is the power of God, not your words, not your personality, not your charisma. It's just as important as it is that we do our part in preaching the gospel to every creature. It's also important, just as important as it is to do that, it's also important to trust God when it comes to doing his part, to trust the gospel. Point number two, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. God has given us power through the gospel, and the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. When you're submitted to the Spirit of God, you will not be overcome with fear and timidity, but rather you will speak with boldness because it is not your power, it's God's power. It's not your results, it's God's results. If, if someone does not receive the gospel, it's not that you failed, it's that they rejected God. If someone does receive the gospel, it's not that you were, uh, you were uh, uncompromisingly convincing, it's that God saw fit to use you to work his power and that person received it in that same vein, that same manner. When you're submitted to the Spirit of God, you will be compelled by love. One of the primary fears of evangelism is the fear that will not be accepted, right? That people will dislike us for the truths which we tell or the manner of life that we are living. This fear is not just evident among gospel preachers. It's perhaps um, most evident among, uh, well, well it's, it's evident in almost every area of life, right? There are any number of areas of life where we can be fearful of how a person might respond. I've talked uh, behind this pulpit before to parents about this, about how parents uh, can be afraid to talk to their children about the things that are wrong, that their children are walking in, in, a, in a manner that is unbecoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ or unbecoming of obedience or whatever it is. And as the children get older in particular, those parents can become a little bit timid and afraid and unwilling to breach certain topics with their children because they're awkward or because they think their children will, will, will be embarrassed or because they'll be embarrassed or whatever the case may be. And I've exhorted before and I've said, parents, don't be so afraid of your children that you, you don't love them. <laughs> don't be so afraid that your children might respond properly that you don't show them the love that you need to show them by telling them what they need to hear. Don't be so afraid that your child might, re might, might react adversely to something that you're unwilling to reach out to them and try to help them in the manner that you know they need help because it may very well be that they're going through life just waiting for someone to give them direction. And if you fail to do so, then who will it be that gives them that direction? Will it be their friends? Will it be some teacher? Will it be someone on the news? Do you want, do you want to leave it to them to give your, your son the, the, or, or your daughter the guidance? that you're, you're afraid to give them? No, love your child enough to get over those fears and tell them what they need to hear. And this is where I make that connection. You and I see with spiritual eyes the things which the natural man cannot fully comprehend because they are spiritually discerned, you and I know full well. You and I know that those who die outside of Christ are doomed to an eternity in the lake of fire. We know that. And we also know full well that the heart of God loves this world so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for their sins. That God loves your neighbors so much. That God loves your enemies so much. That God loves those 
politicians, those do-nothing politicians in Washington so much, and God loves those men and women in the jail so much, and God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to pay for their sins with his own blood on the cross. And when you and I draw close to God, our hearts are knit with his heart, you begin to well up within you that same love for the souls of men. So that while you're certainly not approving of what those men and women in the jail are doing, while you're certainly not approving of the character and personality of the majority of the people in office, yet you are still overwhelmed with a deep-seated love for their souls and a desire to see them saved. And then comes the natural question. If I actually loved people in this manner, how could I possibly allow the fear of being told no to stand between an eternal soul and the words of life? How could I possibly allow a dirty look to stop me from calling men and women out of death and into life? How could I possibly let some personal loss, job opportunity, coldness in a relationship stand between me, cause me to either shut my mouth or change my actions and not reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ? Much to the contrary. When the love of God is shed abroad in my heart, what comes from God is not a spirit of timidity, but of power, because the results are God and of love, a reality that God loves them, and I need to also. A reality that no matter what a person has done to me or to my loved ones or to my country, none of it is worth even a glimmer of satisfaction in them burning in hell for eternity. Eternity is such a long time. God forbid that we should ever even be comfortable. Now, from a human standpoint, vengeance being what it is, vindictiveness being what it is, satisfaction of seeing evil thwarted being what it is, there is a natural fleshly satisfaction in the thought of certain people standing before the Lord in judgment one day, saying, wow, are they going to be surprised? But from a truly spiritual perspective, from God's perspective, Jesus died and shed his blood for that person that's coming to mind right now just as much as you. And by the way, from a spiritual perspective, you are no better than they. Not even a little bit. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Not just the, righteous, not just the, the, not just the politicians in Washington not just the people in the jail. When we start to think that somehow we are anyone's moral betters, we are already off track. Anything that we have that is spiritually superior in any way, shape, or form is only the extent to which the blood of Jesus Christ has covered our sin. Christ in us. I'm going to skip a few examples there and come to our last point. The spirit of timidity does not come from God. From God comes power. It's the power of the gospel. From God comes love. If you don't tell them who will, finally, from God comes a sound mind. 
1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, I already referenced it just briefly a few moments ago, that God has given to us who are in Christ the capacity to understand spiritual things, those spiritual eyes. And this allows the Spirit of God to commend your heart to the reality of the situation as it stands. We spoke before uh, our, our break because of the virus in Philippians 2 about the surety of rewards for them that love God. I received a definite, definitive call to the ministry. Well, I responded to a definitive call unto the ministry when I was 19 years old. I knew that God wanted me to devote the remainder of my life to sharing his word. When I was wrestling with this call and deciding whether or not it was valid, legitimate, whether or not this was me or God, whether or not this was legitimate or just, you know, a whim, the Lord took me to a particular passage of scripture and commended it to my heart. And in doing so, it kind of, if, you, if I may say it this way, sealed the deal for me. Made me know what I needed to do. See, whatever you give to the gospel will be given back to you 100-fold. This is the sound mind that tells me that even as I share the gospel, number one, it's God's power, not mine. It's God's results, not mine. Number two, if I love men as God loves men, then I will share the gospel because God loves sinners. But number three, let me remember that whatever, to whatever extent I suffer for the gospel, to whatever extent I, I, I go out of my way for the gospel, it will be given back to me. So I was 19 years old, and I was in the stairwell of my dormitory, and I was reading the Bible, and I came across Mark 10, verses 29 to 31. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospel's. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. No one who yields the things of this life, no one who sets aside those fears in their heart, no one who devotes themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ will ever come to regret it. Not in this life, not in the life that is to come. The promises are there, the rewards are there. The only thing left then is the faith in us necessary to trust and obey. We sang it this morning, right? But there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Psalm 126, verse 6. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. The man that spends his days, even though they may be days of persecution, even though they may be days of rejection, but he who spends his days bearing that precious seed will doubtless return with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves, those things which grew from the seeds that he bore with him. Some tenfold, some one hundredfold, some one thousandfold, but they'll come along. But you know what? You're never going to grow anything if you don't plant seeds. Such is the promise of God from whom comes power through the gospel, love as the Savior loves, and a sound mind, clarity that reminds us that whatever the gospel costs us, it is worth it both in this life and in the life that is to come. And I want to leave you with one more thought this morning as we close. The spirit of fear is something that's very natural to man, to the carnal man. It's unnatural to the spiritual man. 
to have this power and this love and this sound mind, it requires a death to self. It requires a real setting aside of me and an appropriating of Christ. It truly requires, as we went back to the beginning of, that me- of this message, a- an abiding in Christ. This idea of living, uh, being willing to leave father and mother and houses and brethren and sisters and children and lands for the Lord's sake and the gospel's. Even if God never asks that of you, that that heart, that spirit that is within you, that death to self. To this end, there's an element of death to self that must take place in order for you to be effective in the gospel. If you're so caught up in what others think of you or what the results might be, you're going to be spiritually inhibited in effectiveness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must allow the gospel to do its work and put yourself aside. You must allow the love of God to shine forth and put your own feelings and animosities and frustrations and vindictiveness toward people aside. You must walk that path. If I may say it this way, you must pick up your cross and follow. Not only is it important, but Jesus told us it's essential. John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are that corn of wheat. You're not a, you're not a tear. You're not among the weeds. You're not one of those. You're, you're, you are the wheat. Fitted to grow and to bear fruit, not to be gathered and burned. But if as a kernel of wheat, I don't die and fall into the ground, I'll still be a wheat, kernel of wheat, but I'm alone. But if I die, if I die, if I die to my own priorities, if I die to my flesh, if I die to whatever spirit might seek to control me, that spirit of timidity, that spirit of apathy, that spirit of self, and live unto God. Submit myself to the things of God, to the power and love and the sound mind of the gospel. That corn of wheat will die, and it will nestle in the ground, and it will sprout. And from that one corn of wheat will bring forth much, much more of the same kind. This is the call that I would die to myself and live unto Christ. And I love what Jesus says here. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life, right? Hating meaning not an emotional loathing, but rather a placing lower in priority or favor. He that lowers his life below the gospel of Jesus Christ, below the commission of God upon us, will keep it unto life eternal. And then I love it. Jesus saying in verse 26, if any man serve me, let him follow me. 
And where I am, there shall also my servant be. What a wonderful thought. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. We'll be right with Christ. No better place that we could possibly be. And this is the call. Die unto myself, live unto Christ, bear fruit, be a reproducing Christian, following my Savior, laying down my life as my Savior laid down his life that I may bear much fruit. Because, as Jesus would say in John chapter 15, verse 8, herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So how are you doing this morning? Have the things of this world crowded or clouded out the things of God? Has a spirit of fear, timidity, overcome your willingness either to share the gospel in whatever capacity the Lord has gifted you to share it or to live the gospel in the capacity that every one of us is called and gifted to do? Maybe it isn't the spirit of fear. Maybe it's apathy or slothfulness, selfishness. Or maybe, and and don't miss this one, maybe you're doing just fine. Maybe you're being faithful. Maybe you're doing your part as best you can, where you are and what you know. Maybe, as you've heard and considered, the Spirit of God is not saying to you, you need to do better here. The Spirit of God is saying to you, well done. Well, praise the Lord for that. Let us remain vigilant. Let us remain faithful. Paul wrote to Timothy to bring him to remembrance in this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1, to stir up the gift that was in him. And let us do the same this morning. Let us remember what God has done in Christ. Let us remember what that has meant for us. And let us thus be stirred up within ourselves to be the messenger to take the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ through God's power, in God's love, with a sound mind, unto all of those who have not heard. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people, and I ask that you would help us to be good testimonies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be willing and bold sharers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us not to be weary in well-doing, Help us not to make excuses. Help us not to be riddled with guilt over the things that you have not enabled and created us to be. Help us to know how you have commissioned us and to joyfully live out that commission in faith and in love. Help us to live in power and love and in a sound mind, those things which are given to us as it relates to the gospel from God. Help us to be willing to make those sacrifices necessary to live out this commission. And we commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.